Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. This is Richard here again, and it is our joy to be coming to you today. Prayer is one of the most excellent means of nourishing the new nature and of causing the souls to flourish and prosper. It is a way to a life of communion with God. Encouragement from Jonathan Edwards Cultivate a habit of communion with God. This will produce that inward peace which will make you superior to your trials. The Wisdom of John Flavel You don't need me to tell you of our tumultuous times. Yet, as the Bible says, we were born and reborn for such a time as this. Fear not what we see around us. Prayer brings us the abundant life promised. Our host, Fred, would love to encourage you to a growing, biblical, dynamic, sincere prayer life. And now, here he is, Fred. Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast. My name is Fred, and I am principal of the podcast. Hail and well met, as they used to say in the olden, olden days, even before I was born. Thank you for listening, and if you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're not, thank you for coming back. And as we begin, because we are beginning today, a four-part series, How God Answers Prayers. As it turns out, my best days are sleepless nights, and it drives my wife crazy. It's been going on since since I was saved, I would, I would say. And like I said, it drives my wife crazy, and she tells me about that every time. And from time to time, I remind her that 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 may be true, but it's actually not a very long trip for her. And be all that as it may, this episode has been delayed. It's a little bit later than I wanted to, and actually several days later than I wanted it to be, because I was not able to figure out what I wanted to say, how exactly I wanted to express this. And if you saw my outlines and my plans and my illustrations, it's just a whole big bunch of nothing and I couldn't figure out what to, to do. Now, I have a set of people. If you were to take, if you were to make a math equation out of the set of people, or not equation, but if you'd make a, a math illustration out of the out of the people that I know, I have a set of people that I don't know very well. Our relationship is is pretty shallow, but it's not shallow because I wouldn't have any relationship with them. I like them. I like them all. Uh, that group is made up of some extended family members and people that I met at work and have kept in touch with over the years. Now, what all that means together is from time to time, one of them will come to me for, I'm going to say answers. I'm not sure how to express it, but they've got issues or they've got problems and they came, they come to me for answers. And because our relationship is shallow and I don't want to give them anything that, that, that really doesn't fit. What I typically do is, is either send them scripture or send them the principles of scripture. And I know from time to time that that doesn't help them very much at all. And I don't like to give personal advice because I would hate to have my personal advice mess things up more than than nothing at times. But I do give them what biblical principles or biblical verses that I think fit. And I know, like I said, from time to time, it doesn't help. I can tell by their response that what I have told them has not helped, not really helped. 
which is a little disappointing, but by faith, the difference between my opinion and scripture is by faith, I believe when I give them scripture that in time that scripture will be will be the answer and they will come to it in God's timing. And I have to believe that by faith because that's where the power is. And the reason I bring that up is because my relationship with them is so limited that I am not sure they understand that scripture is really what I have to give. I don't have anything intrinsically wise. Sometimes I even wonder why they're asking me about situations in their lives. And I come to the conclusion it can only be scripture because I have nothing intrinsically about me that would that would draw them to to answer any questions at all. I'm not very smart, uh, not very insightful, but I do have the Bible. And you've heard me say before with Peter, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee. And that usually comes after somebody thanks me for scripture or praying for them because that's all I really have. And the people that I have the most shallow relationships with, I wish they knew that the reason I respond the way I respond is just that reason. I don't have anything more profound than the Word of God to help them. Now, I'm mentioning that because the result of those joyous, glorious to me, sleepless nights, God does something profound for me. He does something that is, that is memorable profound for me. I told you about the time that I was praying because I was sick. I was only up because I was sick. And so I was praying and listening to a sermon, which turned out to be a sermon on humility. And as I'm praying, before I get to the humility part of this sermon that I was listening to, there was a friend that I was praying for. And I thought to myself, man, that guy, he would be so impressed that I'm up at three in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, praying for him. And in fact, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to write him an email and send it to him. And I almost did it right that at that moment, but I didn't really want to interrupt my prayer. And I'm kind of old school and it was seven, you know, it was 3.30 in the morning. And so I didn't want to disturb him like that was going to happen. But that was my plan. As soon as it turned seven, boom, I'm going to kick off this email. And then as I, as I was listening to the sermon, the humility part hit. And I was completely convicted and completely humbled. And I was crying and weeping. And, and I thought to myself, how dare you even think about emailing this person when the only reason you're up was you're sick and you couldn't sleep. And so you got up. It wasn't even my choice to be up at that time of the morning praying for him. And that's one of those sleepless nights that turns into profound lessons for me. And it fits because this episode on how God answers prayer, I have been trying to think of the best way to present it for weeks now. And I've been thinking and kicking around and, like I said, making outlines. And it's just been frustrating. And a couple nights ago, on one of those sleepless nights, that's all I could think about was this episode. And this time, at four in the 4.30 in the morning, you're going to hear what came to my mind at 4.30 in the morning. That's what follows after this. And my friends, that I just want them to know that I don't have anything in myself to tell them, but the Word of God does. That's what reminded me of this. I had no idea how to do this. And then when this came to mind, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Now, the point of this episode is going to be that we are incorrect we have things wrong if we believe that the main reason we pray is to get stuff that we want, to get things that we want, whatever it is. If that's our attitude, 
We have it wrong. We have it incorrect. That's not the main reason of prayer. We've talked about the main reason of prayer, which is the glory of God. And then the chief reasons we pray is to conform us to his image. We have to grow into these things too, by the way. And then we understand the abundant life through our relationship with God. That's John 17, 3. And you can read that if you'd like. But many people, saved and unsaved, and we're going to see a picture of both of those people today, those types of people today, think that prayer is useful only as it gets you what you want. And if that is the case for you, you're really going to struggle in prayer. We are going to look at the story of Balaam. It's a ludicrous story on many levels, but we're going to look at that today. But before we do, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for today. I thank you that you have moved to remind me in your word of exactly what it's like to believe that prayer is primarily to get us things we want. Holy God, in humility, I do thank you for bringing this scripture to mind, these passages to mind. And I would just pray that as we read through them, your ho you, Holy Spirit, would move to teach people, that you would weed out anything that I might say that is unworthy and make only memorable what brings forth the truth about what prayer really is and how we sometimes get focused on what we want with such fervor that we keep on praying and actually try to manipulate you in the process. Take this day, make it your time, Lord Jesus, make it make sense, Holy God. Help me stay out of the way and Holy Spirit move to teach your people that prayer is not the main way we get just stuff that we want. We bow before you in humility. Do your holy will despite the weakness of your servant. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to go to Numbers 2, 22. Now, to set the story, the main characters are going to be a man named Balak, and you will hear that he was the king of Moab, and a man named Balak. And I have to tell you, I haven't studied this passage particularly, in particularly, at all. I've read about it over and over again, but I haven't really studied it. And in my heart, I've always wanted to believe that Balaam will be in heaven with us. He is used in the New Testament, and I uh, forgive me, I don't know exactly where it's at off the top of my head, but the New Testament calls what happens here the error of Balaam, and we're going to see what that is. But I do believe, as I've read this over and over again the last few days to get ready for this, that he is a believer, but that he was focused on something that he wanted so badly, he stopped listening to God. And Balak was actually not a believer, but he wanted something so badly that he resorted to prayer, a prayer to Yahweh, to see if he could get what he wanted. So we're in Numbers 22. The sons of Israel are moving through their 40-year wandering, and they have been winning battles this whole time. So they've been fighting battles and winning battles, and news about them has spread. And not only that, we're going to find where they are brings Israel right into the focus of Balak and the area of Moab. I think it would be wrong to call it a country. And Balak is a king probably more in the way of we would think of warlords these days than kings like a king of England. So we're going to begin. We're going to lay this out. We're going to read the scripture 
I'll try to make my comments minimal, and then we'll move ahead from there. So we start in Numbers 22, 1 through 6 is what we're going to read. And the Bible says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, opposite of Jericho. So they're not in the promised land. Moses is their leader. Verse 2, Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab at that time. So he sent, that's Balak, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor of Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land. They are living opposite of me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. And whatever Balaam's reputation was, it was of a man who had God's ear, and it was a, a worthy reputa reputation, because we will see he does have God's ear. And we know he prayed. He talked to God and God talked to him. However that looked in the Old Testament, we know that, well, we will see that Balaam did that. Where he comes from, he's one of those mysterious characters that shows up. And I'm not sure where he comes from or where he's going. Like I said, I haven't studied this greatly, but he was a man of reputation that he had the ear of God. He talked to God. So verse 7 so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their land. So they had a little bit of money or a little bit of stuff, goods, maybe animals that they were going to give to Balaam. And they had it with them. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. Prayer request, come and curse this people. And remember, Balaam didn't know who these people were any more at this point than Balak did. And he said, this is Balaam. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Verse 9, this is still of 22. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men who are with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. So Balak sends his prayer request. Balaam takes it to God, again, not knowing the full story. And that's part of this. God is doing behind the scenes things neither Balak nor Balaam know. But he goes to God and he gives the prayer request. Curse this people. Verse 12, And God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And the leaders of Moab arose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. In short, God said, No. And he told both Balaam and Balak, No. Now, this is what happens when you think prayer is the way to get what you want. Balak now turns to some pretty familiar ploys 
or tricks, we might say, or manipulation. Verse 15, Numbers 22. Then Balak again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And they came to Balaam and said, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. The first ploy, they sent distinguished people. These are more important people. These are distinguished people. And sometimes we go to God and say, you know what, God, I've talked to all my friends about this, and they think it's a really good idea. And I think it's a really good idea. And we rely on human wisdom and human understanding to tell God he should answer yes. He's already answered us no and answered Balak no and Balaam. But you should you should say yes, because all these people agree with me that this is a good thing. I hope that makes sense. And I hope that you may be able to put yourself into that position sometimes where you go to God and the answer seems no. And then you come back with him and say, you know what? I talked to my best buddy, Kevin, and he thinks it's a good idea. So I'm going to pray for this again. So really important people, ploy one, smart people. And we know that distinguished people are that way because they're smart. So God should listen to them, right? But then he adds on ploy number two, and this is for the prophet. So verse 17, then they say, uh, Balak says through these people, for I will indeed honor you richly and will do whatever you say. Please come then and curse this people for me. So ploy two is adding money. We'll go to the prophet and say, man, I've got more than just your normal fee. I'm going to give you lots of money. And then we add to that it reads to me, we'll add to ploy number three, we add to the really influential people and the money that, we, that we'll give you. He also says, it seems to me, I'll owe you one. You do me this favor. You come over, you pray and curse these people, get God to do that for you, uh, to curse these people. And, and not only will I give you this money, but I owe you one. Not only is it smart, I'll give you this money, but I'll owe you one. Verse 18, then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Pretty good answer right out of the box. And it's almost a pretty good answer, as we will find out. Because he says, verse 19, Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak me. He's been told twice. Balaam has. Balak only sees this. He doesn't see the first prayer request, but he sees the second. But Balaam has already been told twice, no. But he says, and this is what the heir of Balaam is in the New Testament, I really would like that money and maybe the favor of this king. So I'll ask again. So it was a good answer, but not quite the best answer. Verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. And verse 21, So Balaam rose in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he went with the leaders of Moab. Now this is where we see the complexity of God and his purposes. And I haven't, again, I haven't studied these passages, but this is a perplexing situation to me because he tells Balaam, okay, you can go, verse 20 and 21. Go ahead and go with them. 
But then let's read what happens in verse 22. So Balaam got up, got on his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. Verse 22, but God was angry because he was going and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding his donkey and two of his servants were with him. This is where it gets sticky and interesting and a little bit mad, the British would say. God told him to go, that he could go. Even sounds like he told him to go. And then he got angry with him when he went. And the best sense I can make out of this over the last few days, the best sense that I can give is that God is saying something like, okay, if you want to go, go. But knowing that he has already told Balaam no. And it's sort of like my wife does uh, or has done in the past. Sometimes she'll say, go and do something, even though she doesn't want me to do that. And actually, I do the same thing. She got a tattoo uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, which was actually really important. I guess not a year ago yet. And I'm not all that in favor of tattoos, but I just said it was okay. So everybody does that. And I think this was a test for Balaam and he failed the first part of the test because he went, he knew God said no, and he knew God wasn't going to change his mind. And yet he went for the money, which is key. And then verse 23, this gets us to our favorite, one of our favorite or people's favorite parts of this story. When the donkey saw the angel, angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel, angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel, the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again and they kept writing. Verse 26, and the angel, angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Okay, This is where, this is funny. This part is funny. God has a sense of humor. That's another thing we learn about our complex God is he has a sense of humor. And this story is funny because it's funny, but it's also funny because it illustrates how invested Balak and Balaam, for different reasons, how invested they were in trying to find a way to use prayer to get what they wanted. Balak wanted to curse and defeat God's people, and Balaam wanted money. He wanted that money. And probably the tantalizing price, whatever else you want, or I'll do whatever else you say, was tantalizing to him as well. So that's funny by itself. Balaam knew that the answer was no, and yet he kept going. And he didn't take it as, as a sign when the donkey stopped three times. I had a similar situation many years ago when I wanted to move to Los Angeles, but that's for another day. And the donkey speaking is part of God's marvelous power and wisdom. And dare I say, again, sense of humor. I don't think it speaks in a general way of, of donkeys. 
I don't think it speaks, speaks any broader than this moment. But it is one of those mysterious things that God, at this point, has not chosen to tell us about. Now back to 28. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Another humorous spot. Balaam answers the donkey. It doesn't even seem like he hesitates. Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you. And the donkey said to Balaam, so he's having a conversation with his donkey, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he, that's Balaam, said no. And again, I haven't studied this like I've told you, but I believe every word, every jot and tittle. And so you can take that and, or leave it as well. But I believe this is what happened. This is what God says happened. This is what happened. So he has a little argument with his donkey. And then verse 31. And I believe this is the second part of the test. Because the donkey stopped. You might take it as a sign if you were insightful that maybe you shouldn't be going. But, but that money was out there. He wanted to go. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said, he bowed to the ground because he knew this was God. And the angel of the Lord said, a pre-incarnate Christ. And the angel of the Lord said, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live. Again, this is a mad, curious moment. God told him to go or gave him permission at least. And then he was angry when he went. That was the first test, that he got up and went with these people, even though he knew the answer was no. The second test was, how far do you, how much do you want that money? That you will take your life into your own hands. Your donkey was smarter than that. She stopped. And then, verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it's displeasing to you, I will turn back. And here we go again, one of those mad moments. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I shall tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Now that does seem a little confusing, but what we're going to find is the word that Balaam speaks, he is faithful about, and that word opens up our knowledge of God and our knowledge of God's purpose to not only Balaam, but to us. And this is where, again, when we get to the end of this, where I think Balaam is going to be in heaven because he came to a confrontational point, which we will see, and he went the right way. But right now, in this test, the error of Balaam, we see how far he's going to go to see if he could get that prayer answered so he could get the money. So even though he knows all these things and he knows the answer is not going to change, he goes ahead. Verse 36, now he's coming to Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not urgently send you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? 
in my house, we have, since my grandkids were born, my children have a phrase, chop liver. And I pay a lot of attention to their grandkids and, and my children have become chop liver. Not quite that. But that's about what Balak's saying, right? What am I, chop liver, that you didn't come to me the first time? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts into my mouth, that I shall speak. So he sets the parameter, right? I'm here now. I'm not sure what you wanted. Evidently, that other than he thought he was so special that Balaam should come running. But I am here now. Kind of a warning. I can only tell you what God's going to, to say. Verse 39. And Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kirith Huzath. That's probably not even close. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. And it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, and he saw from there a portion of the people. Now we've stepped into ploy four. We've seen ploy one. I'm going to send influential people who think it's a good idea. Ploy two was money. Ploy three was the extra temptation of whatever else you might want. Ploy four, or trick four, I call worship, feigned worship and manipulative worship. It's feigned worship for Balak. They had their own gods. They had their own people. That, that wasn't working. So he went to Yahweh through Balaam, and that didn't work. It didn't work twice. So now he's going to fake some worship, sacrifice some oxen. And Balaam wants that money so bad, he is also going to try to manipulate God through worship of those oxen through that sacrifice. When we really, really want something, we might say, Lord, I'll do these things like payment. And we do that too when we really, really want something. We use ploy number one, Lord Jesus, this is a really good idea. And all my friends think it's a good idea. So I think you should tell me yes and not no. Or ploy two, you know, if I'm not doing something, I'll do whatever, everything I'm supposed to do, Lord, I'll be more dedicated to you if you answer this prayer. And ploy number three, there's anything I'm missing, Lord, tell me, just tell me that and I'll do it to get this prayer answered. So that's what they've done, those three ploys, and now it comes to worship. And now we fill out this, the look at feigned worship and manipulative worship. Chapter 23, verse 1, Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. So we've got our worship in place now. Lord, you will answer the prayer now because I've worshiped. I've done what you wanted me to do. Verse four, now God met Balaam and said to him, I have set up, this is the funny part too. Balaam said, I have set up seven altars and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. To me, that's funny because Balaam said, okay, Lord, just in case you haven't been paying attention, I've worshiped. I'm obeying you. I've, I've sacrificed these rams and these bulls. Soothing offering I'm trying to give you so you'll answer this prayer and then I'll get the money for it. Then the Lord, verse 5, put a word into Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and you shall speak thus. So he returned to him and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering. He was still pretending, I'm still by the offering. 
he and all the leaders of Moab, that's Balak, still pretending to worship. In verse 7, and he, that's Balaam, took up his discourse and said, after telling God, this is what I've done for you. So here's your answer. From Aram, Balak has brought me. Moab's king from the mountains of the east, come curse Jacob for me, and come and denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, and look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. In all of that, you can read it again yourself, but what's God telling him? No, I'm not going to curse Israel. In fact, I have a plan for Israel, and I'm going to bless them. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. Balaam here, and he answered and said, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Those are in other reasons. Those are kind of add on to the reasons that I believe we will see Balaam in heaven despite his error here. In verse 13, the humor goes on, because then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from where you may see them. Although you see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them and curse them for me, from there. So he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pigshah, Pishgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So worship part two. I'm serious, God. I'm going to really follow through. Verse 15, Balaam again. Then he said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet the Lord yonder. I love that word yonder. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, back to Balak, and he came to him. Behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the leaders of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. And these are the highlights. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it good? Basically, I've told you this before. Verse 20, behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, I cannot revoke it. Verse 21, he has not observed a misfortune in Jacob nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and a shout of the king is among them. Hold on to that thought. Then hold on to this thought. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild, of the wild ox. Verse 23, for there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. No, no, no. He keeps telling him no. Behold, a people arises like a lioness, as a, and as a lion it lifts itself. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And this is prophecy, and prophecy sometimes has quick turnaround and, and also lengthy turnaround. 
It has an answer for now and then an answer for later. And this prophecy does. We're going to look at this in a second. Because this is the revelation. And God hints that the reason he's not letting Balaam curse this people is because he has a purpose for Israel. And it's not just who they are as a nation. He will not curse them, verse 19, because of his faithfulness. And he will not curse them because he has an ultimate end in mind. Remember verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. So you keep coming to me with this stuff and I keep telling you, no, I'm not going to curse them. But then he also says throughout that, if you'll look throughout that passage, we see some foreshadowings of God's plan for Israel. When he says, and the shout of a king is among them, Israel had no king at this point. Moses was their leader. God wanted to be their leader. And for many, many years, Joseph and the judges were the leader of Israel, not a king. But this foreshadows, I believe, the King Jesus who's coming at the end. This is God's plan that they do not see. And when we pray and ask for things and we believe we should get them just because we want them, there is no way, as God very often answers no, that we see or can be aware of what he's about to do. If we were, we would probably stop asking like these guys haven't stopped asking. So a shout of the king is a foreshadowing of Jesus. God bringing them, Israel, at this point in time, out of Egypt is a foreshadowing of what he's going to do with the Messiah. He's going to bring him out of Egypt. Then verse 23, at the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Read the end of Hebrews 11. That's the proper time. None of these guys saw the ultimate reason God did things, but we have through Christ. So God is foreshadowing the Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that foreshadowing is heard as Israel thunders through these lands for God's purpose. So do you see what, when we, when we come to God and think just because we want it, we should get it, that he's doing things that we can't see. And we've talked about that a little bit before. God's plan, God is faithful. His plan will be fulfilled through Israel, the salvation of all mankind. But funny enough, it doesn't stop. Then Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all or bless them at all. But Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks that I must do? Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place, and perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them from there. Neither of them stopped. Balak wanted the curse, and Balaam wanted the money, so he kept going. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland, and Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here. Prepare seven bulls and seven rams here. And Balak did just as Balaam had said and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Again, they just keep going. And we've done that, haven't we? I know I have. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as other times, to seek the omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping, tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came on him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
and the oracle of the man whose eyes have been opened. And I believe this is the turning point for Balaam. He's seen his foolishness. His eyes have been opened. And then verse 4, again of 24. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and who sees the visions of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. Now it dawns on Balaam, the purpose of the Lord. And he blessed Israel again. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. He's Israel, through Israel, is going to be a greater king through the seed of Israel, a greater king than Agag could ever be. Verse 8, he brings them back out of Egypt. Then verse 10, those again are the foreshadowings. Then, then verse 10, and Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. So he's gone from pleading with God to threatening God's prophet. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Ploy five, threat. You haven't given me what I wanted, God, so now this is what I'm going to do. And this, again, is the moment that I think Balaam came to his senses. Because implicit in that last ploy, it's actually the most insidious. Because it implies if you turn away from God and you curse these people, you defy your God and curse these people, you can still have the honor. You still have the money. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his full house of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Why he didn't come to this conclusion a long time ago, this would have been a short episode, huh? But he didn't. He wanted that money, the era of Balaam. What the Lord speaks, that I shall speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eyes has been opened. He said the same thing. The oracle before, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. Again, some foreshadowings of Jesus in the next few verses, but basically, he says, they're coming, and God is going to use them to punish the nations, and he's ordained it, and he's going to build. You can read the next few verses if you'd like. They're actually pretty moving. But then Balak, verse 25, or Balaam, then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. His way. So Balaam's been threatened. He's been bribed. But when it comes to the threat, and this again is where I think we're going to see him, why I think we're going to see him in heaven is he went home. He took the threat. Do your best. I'll die the death of the righteous. But I'm going to give you this prophecy. You're in trouble. And then I'm going home. My beloved friends, how far have we gone in the past to get what we wanted through prayer? We know that the Lord tells us no, or maybe even wait at the time. Remember Abraham? He had to wait 
All he had to do was wait. The answer was yes, and it was coming, and he had to wait. But what did he do? I believe the only time Abraham committed adultery, I may be wrong about this, but from the way I read my Bible, I believe the only time Abraham committed adultery was with Hagar at Sarah's insistence, because that's how far Abraham went instead of waiting on the son of promise. And as children of God, there are times we ask for a stone. I have over and over again, or we ask for a snake. Too many times, too many times in my prayers, I have been thinking money like a Balaam, and the Lord has said no. And I've prayed and prayed and prayed. And it might be something that I wanted, might be some circumstance, or it might be a discipline of the Lord that I wanted to avoid. But glory to God, he knows what he's doing. In Romans, it says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And that principle goes with all of us. The Lord wants us to succeed. He wants us to be more like Christ. He wants us to be his loving children, his loving servants, his loving slaves. And he's on our side, and he's going to make us stand. And there are times that we fall because we want so badly something that we just keep seeking it and praying about it even. Sometimes we just do it. And we have ploys like that. We have ploys like everybody thinks it's a good idea. Here's some money. Here, here's some circumstances that will change. And we worship thinking God will answer our prayer. He wants to make us stand. But at the same time, we need to know to the glory of God that our prayers, as we've seen from my testimonies, and we'll review those a little bit, and biblically, not today though, God very often, perhaps most of the time, does say yes, but his concern is not that we get all the stuff that we want, but that we draw near to him. We learn about him and his gifts. They are good gifts from heaven, and the gifts that we get from him, those good gifts, are unlike the stuff that we get now. These gifts that we get through drawing close to him and learning of him and praying sincerely before him, that's the stuff that's going to go to eternity with us. I was praying through Psalm 40 today, and I was rejoicing in God. And one of the things I was rejoicing about is that I have the opportunity, this opportunity to tell the praises of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to the great congregation. Beloved brethren, you, we, the true church of Jesus, we're the great congregation. And what makes us great is our God and not ourselves. We belong to his church. We proclaim his sacrifice and his goodness and his wisdom. That's what makes us part of the great congregation for the comfort of our souls. There is nothing like our relationship with the Holy God of the universe. There is nothing so precious to us than that. And we remember the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. Our prayers, the things that we want in the moment, pale in comparison. And if you want, let's go to Micah 6, 5, and 8 says, My people remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and from Siddim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. We're building up through Balaam to this famous verse. 
with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before him, before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God the Father is working. He's working on more than us getting what we want, or even the work of our worship, our service. Brethren, we want to be on the side of God's righteous acts, which means we trust Him. And even when He says no to some of our greatest desires, as we come to him over and over in prayer, he's not manipulated by any ploy. He's not moved from his perfect will. Brethren, let's pray for one another. Let us pray that we all will do what is good, just, kind, from a heart of humility. Amen.